we really screwed up the the South that we love and call home, you know, on any number of fronts. But, you know, there is so much here still that's worth conserving, protecting, and saving. Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Before John Muir became known as the father of our national parks and co-founder of the Sierra Club, he was just a young man who wanted to explore America. So in 1867, when he was 29, he set out on a walk through the South. He started in Kentucky and ended up in Florida, and later documented the trip in a book called A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf. Although technically, he walked 900 miles and did the other 100 by boat. A few years ago, Atlanta writer Dan Chapman, a longtime newspaper reporter who now works for the Fish and Wildlife Service, picked up Muir's book and decided to retrace his steps. That led to Chapman's new book called A Road Running Southward. The South has changed a lot in 155 years, and most of that change hasn't been good for our environment. What Chapman does is get in close to show just how and where we're losing ground. From coal ash disasters, to dredged out rivers, to flowers that have nowhere else to grow. But along the way, he finds some things to celebrate. Places where the South's incredible natural diversity is still holding on. And a few places where things are even better than they were when John Muir came traipsing through. Here's our conversation. Dan Chapman, we're not 10 pages into this book and you're trespassing in a cemetery. Could you explain yourself? Well, you know, I'm not usually Tommy a lawbreaker, but I figured in this instance, I really needed to experience what John Muir went through in 1867. Uh, you know, first off, I was I didn't know that Muir had walked this out. So it was all um, new to me, news to me. And um, so when I did find out and I, I plotted his route on a map and it showed that a lot of the places that he visited, I, of course, knew and had visited. But it also gave me a roadmap, as it were, to write about all sorts of things environmental that I'd covered for years. So obviously, uh, I'm now in Georgia after having left Charlotte, and I've been to uh, Savannah a million times, been to Bonaventure Cemetery a a handful of times. And um, since he spent uh, about five or six days there, which were really sort of life-changing, life-altering time for him, I figure, well, heck, what a great place to start off my book um, to experience, hopefully, what he experienced and to think big thoughts and to try and get the ball rolling. Could you sort of place uh, in the kind of timeline of John Muir's life where he was at this moment? He was not yet the famous, you know, founder of the Sierra Club, environmentalist. He's not the person we all knew yet, right? Right. He was largely a nobody. Um, he Even to his family by this point, you know, he, uh, he was a Scotsman. He emigrated here with his father, a very dour and strict uh, preacher wannabe, 
um, from Scotland and they moved to the, to the Wild West, which was the Wisconsin hinterlands. He grew up there. Uh, it was work, work, work the whole time. Um, he finally got away from the frontier and his father's overbearing um, ways to enroll at the University of Wisconsin. Studied there for a couple of years, but he always had this wanderlust. Um, and on top of that, he had a growing appreciation for nature, the outdoors and botany in particular. So this was, he was still in his young twenties, mid twenties by now, and he gave up on college and just started, you know, traipsing around the country, first in the Wisconsin and the Midwestern countryside. And then he went up to Canada where he had a brother living and it was convenient because he was able to dodge the civil war. He would, you know, he did not want to be a, a recruit. Um, and after spending a couple of years up there working at a factory and botanizing, he worked his way back down to the United States and ended up in Indianapolis. By this time, he was late 20s. Uh, he was working in a factory, a uh, very sharp guy. Everybody wanted him to work for him because he was quite the tinkerer and inventor. And he had helped greatly this factory sort of streamline their operations. It was like a buggy factory. Um, and, you know, he got hurt. He was working on a, um, a piece of machinery, uh, screw-like implement lodged in his right eye and blinded him, went home. His left eye sympathetically also went blind. He thought this was it. My goal of being the great botanist of this century in the United States has gone down the tubes because I can no longer see. Lo and behold, he recuperated and decided if I'm going to do what my life's calling is, and eventually make it down to the Amazon, I must walk the South. He was about 29 years old. I mean, was he planning to just like walk the South and then keep going to the Amazon? Was that, was that the idea? Pretty much. He, you know, he, uh, despite all of his wanderings and his, you know, his intrepid ways and um, his love of uh, adventure, the South was a pretty harsh and different environment than what he was used to, the cooler, more friendly climes of the Midwest and the North. So he really didn't have a great appreciation of what was about to happen. But yes, his goal was to walk the south down to the Gulf, hop a boat to points further south, primarily Brazil and or Argentina. And then his route, he wanted to go hike and, cru and cruise down the Amazon. And what was your goal for sort of following in his footsteps, at least on that leg in the U.S.? Well, first off, not to get arrested, and I did not get arrested at Bonaventure Cemetery. <laughs> uh, but my goal, you know, was really to um, to tell a story of the South and its environment, and to highlight the the environmental and ecological ills that you know bedevil this region that we love. And I had long been searching for a way to tell this story without it being sort of you know a dull recitation of oh gosh, you know, climate change is bad, coal ash is bad water uh, wars are bad, pollution is bad, instead of just making it sort of, you know, like a primer on all that's wrong with the South's environment, I was looking for an engaging way to tell it. So when I stumbled across, and I had no idea that Muir had walked the South uh, either, uh, so when I found out that he did indeed, and he wrote a book about it, I plotted his, his route on a map, and then I just went around visiting, hiking, driving to all these places, to tell the story of the South, its ecological ills, but also the beauty, the, the incredible biodiversity um, and the wonder that really is, you know, the region uh, between the Appalachians and the coastal plain. So before we dive into the details of, of his journey and your journey, 
there's been a lot of discussion, I think, especially lately, about how much we should pay attention to John Muir because of a lot of the racist things he said and wrote about African Americans um, and also Native Americans he ran across along the way. What What's your thoughts on how you deal with all that? Yeah, you know, it, it was really disheartening. I'm about 10 pages maybe into John, John Muir's uh, book about, you know, you know, traveling the South and bam, you know, he doesn't waste much time denigrating African-Americans and later, and particularly in other books, Native Americans. So I'm reading along and I go, you know, he's dropping the N-bomb and he's, uh, you know, all the old, you know, racist tropes about, you know, being lazy and dumb and all that. And it just is, it was really sort of disheartening. It's like, well, hell now there goes, you know, can I really write a book uh, using John Muir as I do? And, you know, a point, uh, you know, to clarify, the book is not a biography of John Muir. I'm not, a, I'm not a Muir expert. I've read a lot, you know, I've read a lot about him. I've read a lot of his works and everything, but it's not, you know, like so much has been sort of hagiographical, if you will, you know, that, oh, here's St. John of the Mountains, John of the Woods or whatnot. But, you know, with this, I, I sat there, I put the book down and I sat there for a good couple of days and go, well, how do I proceed? Do I proceed? And, I, you know, obviously, ultimately I said, yes, I do. But, you know, I say very clearly in the book and I'll, you know, I'll say it again now, he was a racist. You know, he was, a lot of people like to explain it away as, oh, he was a man of his times and everybody was, and that may be true and everything, but the fact that he has become such an icon of the environmental movement is interesting and also disheartening. Um, I thought my job here was to, you know, lay it on the line, this is who he is, but you really can't diminish, it diminishes him as a man, but you really cannot diminish the impact he has had on the entire environmental movement, uh, love of nature, love of wilderness, love of the outdoors. I can't control that. I had nothing to do with building it up to the way he is today. I think we have to explain it in the context. This is the, this is the guy he was, this is what he's created. It was wrong. And um, we just have to deal with it. But it really, you can't take away from the fact that he is considered, you know, today, warts and all, largely the father of uh, the American environmental movement. Yeah, so I want to start now on this, this sort of twin journey that, that you and he took, uh, you know, 160 years apart or so, um, by talking about uh, a John Muir festival that you sort of ran into in Tennessee and did not turn out quite what you expected it to be. Man, I was psyched because, you know, again, a lot of people down here, you know, he's John of the West. He's not John of the East. And so I think the knowledge of him here is is lacking um, because he was just was not so well known. So I'm going along and, I, and uh, I'd come down from Mammoth Cave and I was tootling along and I knew that there was going to be this festival there, but I was really excited for it because I wanted to see a bunch of like-minded people who were celebrating the outdoors and celebrating wildlife and uh, conservation and restoration and protection of the green spaces and whatnot. Um, and so I get there and there's this festival. It's not all that well attended. It was the second year. It was Muir Fest 2020 or 2019 or something like that. And it started off with a great sturgeon release, you know, the sturgeon with a great big fish of, the, of all of the rivers in the South and the Southeast. 
you know, which had been largely decimated because of overfishing and dam building and pollution and all that. So here they were going to release about 1,000 sturgeon babies back into the river. So it was quite a festive occasion. There was music, there was uh, beer, there were booths, there was all of that. And I'm getting up there and I'm really grooving on this. And then I start talking to everybody. And uh, it's a lovely point along the, along the Clinch River and the Emory River there up on a mountaintop and I'm talking to a fella and he goes, uh, yeah, this is great and everything, but you know what Kingston, Tennessee is renowned for, don't you? And I'm like, uh, no, I thought it was the Muir Festival. He goes, no. He goes, you see those smokestacks over there? And I go, oh, mm, yep, I know now. Those were the coal stacks for the Kingston uh, coal um, factory, which had the worst industrial disaster in US history back in, oh, what is it, 2009, where millions of tons of coal ash breached a dam wall and went flowing downhill into the Clinch and Emory Rivers and just destroyed about every living thing in its way. So what turned out, what, what promised to be a lot of fun turned out to be really sort of disheartening. I think a theme of this book is kind of everywhere you land, you look around and there's some new environmental disaster that you could you know, see pretty quickly. Did Muir, in your mind, sort of predict most of this stuff was going to happen? No, no. I mean, there's no way to predict, especially in the South, because you got to remember, this was post-Civil War and everything was destitute and poverty-ridden and um, really run down. So there was really no way he could predict, you know, for example, sprawl that you see in Charlotte going 50 miles from from trying on trade and trying in every direction. There's no way he could predict that. There was no way he could predict um, at that time that all of the mountains of the Appalachians would be denuded by uh, logging. You know, literally all of them were cut, you know, to the top and, and through all the hills and hollers um, for the wood that built the cities and the railroads and what have you across the, the region. He couldn't predict that. He couldn't predict the degree of how we ended up polluting our rivers uh, and streams and oceans. And so a lot of that was really beyond anybody's, you know, we, nobody had any idea the, the, the pace of development and um, dollarizing, as Muir put it, that was about to happen. Something that was interesting to me that I didn't know before I read your book was that some of the places where we go now to experience that beauty of nature weren't always this pristine uh, pieces of land. You talk about a lot of the national forests that we have now has having been something very different in the past, right? Yeah, and you know, actually, you know, to take your 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 last question and turn it around, you know, what if he were plopped down here now? What would he think? He'd be up in the the Smokies or the Nantahala and go, "This is beautiful," because in between the time he was here at the end of the Civil War, after the Civil War, and now, I mean, all of those hills had been cut, all of those rivers had been turned into uh, mud pits. Um, and, you know, the towns were all poor. And, but, you know, after, after we had succeeded in, you know, pretty much ruining <laughs> the entire forests um, and nobody wanted the land anymore, especially the, the timber barons who had no more use for them, the federal government came in and bought, you know, millions of acres for pennies on the dollar, maybe a dollar an acre. Um, and that, you know, which is really, I think, one of the great success stories of 
of the South, as well as of the federal government in the South, is that because of that, we have the Nantahala, the Pisgah, the Cherokee, the Cherokee, the Smokies, and other national parks and forests, which look beautiful. Obviously, they've all got their issues and they're still ongoing issues, but which really look lovely. When we come back, Dan Chapman talks about John Muir's epiphanies that still hold true today. Man needs green space. Man needs to be able to get away and to just revel in, as he would put it, God's beauty. That and more I had on Southbound. Before we get back to today's episode, I want to take just a second to let you know about the treasures we've got in the Southbound archives. We've done more than 100 episodes now. By my rough calculations, you could drive all the way from Charlotte to San Francisco, existing on nothing but Southbound episodes, plus the occasional snack. So there's bound to be something you love. Interested in music? I've done episodes with Ben Folds, Rhiannon Giddens, Anthony Hamilton, Patterson Hood, and many, many others. Comedy? How about Roy Wood Jr., Fortune Feimster, and Nate Bargatze? Sports? Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Paul Feinbaum. Fashion? Andre Leon Talley and Billy Reed. Plus so many others, from Chef Vivian Howard, to writer Rick Bragg, to actress Brooklyn Decker. I also talked to many Southerners who might not be as famous, but are doing important work. From whale watcher Clay George to hip-hop scholar Regina Bradley. You can dive into the archives by following Southbound on any of your favorite podcast providers or by going to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. Enjoy the journey. And now, back to my conversation with Dan Chapman. One of the things that I noticed, I think in particular when you went to the the Smokies National Park, was the sort of dilemma that we have is that we've created all this beautiful parkland for people to see, but by God, a lot of people are seeing it. Yeah. Um, how do we deal with that? And, and and what were your experiences there? Yeah, no, that's you know, it's the the, the age old we're age old expression. We're loving them to death, man. You know, um, I don't go. I go backpacking a lot, you know, and I go camping a lot, but I avoid like hell the Smokies unless it's February or March. And that's when I do a lot of winter camping. I'll go up there then because it's just too crowded, you know, and it's the same closer to Charlotte with the Pisgah and the Nantahala. Um, But, you know, the Smokies are now the most visited national park in the country, 14 million people. And you talked about Klingman's Dome and you had to like, pull the car over and walk the rest away because it was gridlocked just trying to get up there? It's insane, man. You know, you wind your way up, whether from the North Carolina side or the Tennessee side, and then you turn off on the road that goes up to Klingman's Dome. And, you know, traffic starts to slow a little bit, then it starts to crawl, and then it just stops. Like if you're there on a summer weekend or worse, a fall weekend. And so I'd had enough, man. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to park my car on the side of the road like a lot lot of other people were doing. And I hiked the last mile up. And then you get there and it's like, it's just like, you know, a Walmart parking lot. People are sitting there waiting for cars to pull out. There's 40 people in line for the men's bathroom. 
Um, it's just, it's just wall to wall people. And it's really hard for me at least to sort of get that, you know, natural groove and feeling when I'm surrounded by my fellow man to such an extent. You do a lot of, you know, mountain climbing in this book, sort of going up through those areas that are, you know, in between the coasts. I think we think about global warming a lot of times and like, you know, Miami's going to be underwater in 50 years or whatever it is. What effects are there of global warming that aren't on the beaches and aren't on the coastlines that are in the areas in between? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I tried to do in this book, as well as in my other writings, is to tell people, hey, folks, climate change is here. You know, you may not live on the coast where you're getting sunny day flooding, where your roads are disappearing and you're finding octopuses in your uh, drainage dishes. But uh, up here, we live with it every day. Um, the things that I tell people about and try to make climate change real to hit home with them is, you're gonna, you know, it, it's not only hotter during the day. Yes, we live in the South. Yes, summers are hot. But at night, the really one of the scary things is just how hot it gets at night now. And, you know, you, whereas before we might have had 40 days a year where the temperature at night did not dip below 75 degrees, now we're having 50, 60 days a year and it just keeps rising. So things like that. And then the storms, you know, you don't have to be on the coast to know that storms are getting a lot worse. Um, you know, you'll have, and this happened last year in, in Western Carolina, as well as in Tennessee, storms that just sit over an area, thunderstorms that will sit over an area for one, two, three days in a row, obviously leading to killer floods. And in the case of North Carolina, I believe five people died out near Silva and Cullowee. So those are think, concrete things that we can see that, you know, it's, these are climate triggers. Hey, people, this is happening. And so, so what does that mean? So that means in the future, you know, the guy who um, is working on a farm in South Georgia and is picking tomatoes or cotton, he's just going to keel over and die because of the heat. Your grandmother who already has asthma issues is going to have them so much worse. These are all things we're seeing now, and you don't have to be in the coast just to experience them. You talked about these these sort of markers, you know, like the floods and the the heat at night and that sort of thing, but you also in this book and you hang out with a bunch of scientists and researchers who are kind of checking on the flora and fauna of all these areas. Are, are there any particular plants or animals that, that they consider sort of, you know, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, when it comes to watching out for tipping points ecologically? Yeah, um, there are a few and there's a few I, I have fun with in the book the best thing the most fun i have in my day job and in writing this book is i get to hang out with really smart outdoorsy people biologists ecologists what have you and you know they're all gracious enough to give me their time and explain you know these things to me who's not expert at anything um because they want their story out and their story is is probably a more hopeful story than than the book but i you know they need be included for example at mammoth cave um there are these, uh, the, these very endangered mussels. They're all over the South in streams and rivers across the country uh, in the South. And um, those are indeed the canaries in the coal mine because those are the guys who clean the water um, that flows downstream that eventually flows into our water intake. If the water is cleaner, if they're cleaning it up, then that's uh, better water quality for us and also cheaper because you don't need as many chemicals to make the water clean to drink. As they disappear, thanks to climate change, pollution, oil and gas spills, um, you name it, 
our job get our job and our health gets compromised. I think my favorite example, though, and this is in far northwestern North Carolina. I spent the day with a park biologist, National Park Service biologist by the name of Chris Olry. His specialty is this very rare and endangered flower called the spreading avens. Uh, it's a beautiful yellow flower that only grows at altitudes higher than 4,4500 feet on north and northwest facing sheer rock cliffs. Okay, so it's in already a pretty precarious position. It has to live there though, because as the waters, as the air gets hotter and the temperatures rise, um, it slowly creeps up the hillside seeking ever cooler temperatures. So Chris has been um, cataloging the, the, the plight of the spreading avens for 20 years now. And he goes all over the mountains, Roan Mountain, into the Pisgahs, and then up in this area that shall not be disclosed near Boone, um, each year, uh, counting them, counting how many buds they have, counting their progress. Where were they last year? Where are they this year? And, you know, it's, uh, if anything is sort of a barometer of how we're in trouble, it is these yellow flowers called the spreading avens because they keep climbing up, up, up. Soon they will have nowhere to go. What really struck me, you know, on a personal level in this book is as you got closer to the coast, that, as you said, um, Muir spent some time in Savannah. He ended up kind of taking a ship down to Fernandina and ended up on, on the Gulf Coast of Florida. But, you know, Savannah is close to where I grew up. And the way you talk about how the shipping canals and not just there, but all up and down the Savannah River, how that river has been sort of like molded to serve man's needs felt like a horror story to read that. What did it feel like to you? No, yeah, that's, and that's the way. The Savannah River once was a lovely river, you know. And at one time, it was a wonderfully fecund and beautiful, slow-moving, yet rather large river. Well, you know, because we can never, man can never leave well enough alone, and we got to screw everything up. You know, we said, aha, we can make some money off this river. First and foremost, let's ship cotton down it, you know. So they put in barges, and then they, they put it, then the barges went down. They figured it took too long for the barges to go from Augusta and points north down to Savannah, where they'd get on the big ships to go overseas. So, you know, there are just too many meanders. There were too many curves. There were, let's straighten it. You know, let's go, bam, right through these things, and we can save. I think they eventually cut off about 40 miles of river uh, and by adding something like, or by, by like subtracting something like 50 or 60 bends in the river. Which increases the speed of the flow, which damages some of the stuff that's there. Exactly. And you're right. I mean, it doesn't take too much of a rocket scientist to figure if you're going to mess that much with Mother Nature, you're going to be messing up things that depend upon the river to live in. Mussels, fish, the birds that eat out of there, the snails, you name it. All of them are dependent on certain ecosystems. And when you start messing with those ecosystems, especially as you get closer to the coast, you know, where you have that lovely cocktail of salt and fresh water that just feeds and nourishes so many types of animals, uh, it just messed it all up. And things got diametrically worse every time they started dredging the Savannah River, deeper and deeper, forever bigger uh, container ships to come up from Tybee Island all the way up to um, Savannah Harbor. What do you think Muir ended up learning on this trip that that pushed him forward into the role that we know him better for? You know, it, and it goes back to Bonaventure and Savannah. 
uh, that was really the um, the moment. The uh, what's the term I'm looking for? The the epiphany that Muir had came in Bonaventure Cemetery. Uh, epiphanies, really. You know, to set the stage a little bit. By this time, he'd been on the road for. I think it was 37 days. He'd walked from Kentucky all the way across the mountains, down the plains to Savannah. He was tired. He was broke. He might have already been feeling the, the initial stages of malaria, which carried him through Florida and laid him up pretty bad. So he was in a bad shape. And then on top of that, you know, he's like, well, I don't have any money and I don't know where to go. So I'm going to end up in a cemetery for five or six nights, you know. So his state of mind really wasn't very good, right? Yeah, he was waiting. He was waiting on his brother to send him some money, right? Right. He was. He would go. He stayed out at Bonaventure, which is about three miles from the downtown Savannah, where there was the exchange office where he was hoping to get a letter and some money, 150 bucks from his brother. His brother was late and he did, you know, he had about a dollar left. He was surviving on crackers and brown stream water outside of the cemetery. But each day he would dutifully go into town looking for the money. So anyway, in this weakened and near delirious state, he really had a couple of wonderful epiphanies. The first being that um, who is man to lord everything over all the other creatures of the world? That's not, you know. The Bible says, you know, that nature, whether it's deer to eat or flowers to eat or cow hides to wear as clothes, that's there for our taking. So by golly, we should take it. Muir, who was deeply religious himself, thought, no, that's not true. All, all creatures, large and small, have important roles to play. And man is really no greater than, say, an alligator or a bluette, a flower. And then the other one, which really was sort of crystallized also, and again, this was before he was John of the Mountains, John of the Sierras, John of the West, was that man needs nature. Man needs green space. Man needs to be able to get away and to just revel in, as he would put it, God's beauty. You know, whether it's a river, a stream, a field, a mountaintop, a swamp, whatnot, but that is as essential to man as bread is. And I guess the natural question is, um, I know you didn't starve for five days hanging out in the cemetery, but I'm wondering what epiphanies, if any, you had in following this route. Well, I, you know, that was my initial hope in going to Bonaventure when I drove down there that first night and when I snuck in there and camped out and everything. Um, I tried to sit back, you know, and make myself think big thoughts, you know, like, okay, Muir was here. I'm going to do that. I'm going to have these great epiphanies and, you know, these great earth shattering ideas. And of course, they didn't come whenever you want them and everything, just in spite of the amount of rye I was drinking. But eventually, you know, I, I was able to, to sort of collect, coalesce, crystallize my thoughts. And, you know, and, and this was also, you know, my thoughts that were crystallized throughout the course of reporting and writing this book. You know, a couple of things and just very quickly, one, we really screwed up the, the South that we love and call home, you know, on any number of fronts Two, But, you know, there is so much here still that's worth conserving, protecting and saving. And, you know, we have just such an incredible and I keep coming back to this amount of natural beauty and biodiversity um, I just jotted a few things down here. We have 90% of the nation's bird species pass through here. Uh, two thirds of the fish live here. One third of all plant species are in the South. 90% of the mussels, 
There are more salamanders here than just about anywhere in the world. So, I mean, these are all things that I don't think people realize, but we are very much richer and better off for having them in our backyard. I want to ask one last question. Is there anything you saw on this trip or any place you were moment where you felt like what you were seeing was pretty close to what John Muir saw? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yes, there were a two, three places maybe, which just made me sit back and go, wow, man, I could be here in 1867. I could be in John's boots. One place in particular um, was, it's a small town in Eastern Georgia called Sylvania, uh, up near the South Carolina line. I was lost. I was looking for a place that John stopped at a farm along a railroad railroad there. The town's gone, the farm's gone. But, and so I got lost, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, GPS stops working. My cell phone doesn't have a signal. My two lane blacktop turns into a dirt road and I'm passing it through a swamp and it's kind of spooky and dark. And it's just all of a sudden magical. I'm like, man, you know, this has not changed in ever. And I'm continuing along and I'm coming out of this swamp, you know, with the Spanish moss draped over the trees and the brown waters, the tannic waters right up alongside the road. And I'm coming around and there's a field, an overgrown field, you know, God knows what it was, probably cotton, but now it's ruined. And in the middle of the field, there was a guy walking along with a walking stick with his back to me. And I'm like, oh my God, that is John Muir right there. So that was one where it's really, it's hard to find, you know, these sort of places as they were 160 years ago. But I really felt there in particular that I was uh, channeling my inner mirror. Maybe it's the eyes we're born with. One pair of eyes sees a pristine beach. Another pair of eyes sees a great place for condos. One pair of eyes sees a wild river. And another pair of eyes sees a water source for a factory. It feels like the industrial eyes have won more than they've lost, especially in the South, where we always seem willing to give up a green field for a golf course. It's only because we were blessed with such an abundance of natural beauty that we have much left at all. Climate change has set forces in motion that it will be hard, if not impossible, to undo. Dan Chapman's book shows that one of our jobs as humans is to fight to protect the wilderness we've still got, just as hard as we fought to tame it, as far back as in John Muir's time. You can still get to places we have barely touched. The top of a remote peak in the Smokies, an empty stretch of Ocracoke Beach. They're magical places, and we need them just as much as we need houses and factories and grocery stores. It just requires the belief that part of living in a society is taking care of those places together so that one day when we need to, we can take a walk in the woods. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes 
with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.